everyone who deploys, who has a family knows. It's a reality that you are away from the people that you love. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. There were a couple of public beheadings. In order to kill them, you've got to be a little bit angry. Not psychotic, but just angry. We could look down Frankfurt and see it on fire. Stuff blowing up everywhere. There will be no surrender. And then they had to fight an enemy in amongst we got children. Clean, you're going to a I could never often. not go back. They were my friends and they felt the trouble like the center. She did say, you've changed. A soldier put everything on the line to help one of our boys. Welcome to Life on the Line. I'm Alex Lloyd, and today I'm speaking with one of my Thistle Productions colleagues about her Australian military service, Major Sharon Maskeldare. Sharon is an award-winning journalist, broadcaster, and author. She's worked for the BBC, Radio France International, and the ABC's Radio Australia, presenting news coverage of war and peacekeeping operations in Northern Ireland, Bosnia, Afghanistan, and Iraq. She has a PhD in communication and is an adjunct associate professor at the University of South Australia. Her area of research is ethnographic journalism and journalistic ethics in regards to coverage of veterans affairs and Anzac commemoration. Sharon is a major in the Australian Army Reserve, working as a public affairs officer with headquarters 9th Brigade. She deployed to Iraq from 2016 to 2017. Today, she does a lot of work in the veterans community including podcasting for Life on the Line and running StoryWrite, a veterans employment support program. And Sharon and I are doing this interview not in either of our hometowns of Adelaide or Sydney, but a few days out from Christmas 2018 in Suffolk in the United Kingdom. Sharon, it's good to be with you today. Thanks for being here, Alex, and thank you for coming to visit me and my family in the UK. Well, I was in London. It was not too much of a trek and well worth the journey. Before we get into your story, Sharon, you have, of course, conducted interviews on this podcast for 2018 season two of this show. Sally Heidenreich, Ben Flink, Dr. Dan Pronk, Scott Calvert, and Dr. Kerry Summerscales. I hope you don't feel too uncomfortable about being at the other end of an interview for a change. Well, I'd be lying if I wasn't a little bit uncomfortable because obviously I'm used to being you know, on your side of the microphone and doing the interview. But no, it's, it's a wonderful opportunity and I'm grateful to you for being here. Sharon, let's start with your journalism background in the 1990s. Well, back in the 1990s, I got very interested in journalism from around the age of 14. Growing up in Essex, just the county next door to where we are now, I got involved with a local parish magazine, interviewing, as we pitched it at that time, interesting people in the local community. So I'd go around to old people's houses, the elderly in the local community. I'd knock on their doors and I'd say, hi, you know, I'm writing for the local magazine and kind of come in and hear what you have to say. And they were very indulgent and kind of put up with this whippersnapper 14-year-old who kind of uh, came knocking on their door and kind of got into the habit of just sitting and listening and just learning from people. Which led to an international career. Well, I suppose you put it like that, but it it was a bit more complicated than that has to be said. I suppose, look, the international bit was that growing up, I was always fascinated by other languages. And then I sort of begged and pleaded my mother and said, look, could I have French lessons? And she said, yeah, okay, we we can organise that. I absolutely loved it. And then from there on, I begged and pleaded to go on some French exchanges to France. Then I ended up learning some German and doing the same with Germany. And then by the time I I was going to leave school and and go to university, I mean, I was just very much committed to the whole kind of European project. You know, at that time, the European Union, as it is right now, I mean, we're facing the prospect of of a Brexit as we're doing this interview today. But back then, it was still also very political. It was highly charged. But I was a committed pro-European and just wanted to to live and work in Europe. And so I I went to Oxford and read um, French and German. And then off the back of that, got involved in European politics and sort of pro-European advocacy while I was a student. Did a postgraduate in journalism, um, joined the BBC and was lucky enough to get work pretty much uh, from the start as a correspondent covering the European Parliament in Strasbourg. And um, 
yeah, it was a, a cause I was passionate about. I really cared about our place in Europe and, and just wanted to do everything I could to try to tell that story to the British people. So you approach this from that greater geopolitical interest of the European Union and what's going to affect people's day-to-day lives in that region. When do you start being drawn to a military context or a veterans context specifically? Was that why you were still working for the BBC? Well, it's funny that you should say that and ask that question because growing up, I always had an interest in the military. I mean, partly because inevitably growing up in Britain, you know, I was born in 1970. That was only 25 years after the end of World War II. And my grandmother, who's now no longer with us, sadly, she died in 2009. I grew up with all these stories about World War II and certainly the experience that she'd been exposed to. And indeed, just as an aside, if you'll indulge me for a moment, I should share with you actually quite a significant narrative of my family history, which is when my grandmother was dying, she actually told me on her deathbed that my grandfather wasn't the man that she'd been married to her whole life, who was a dear gentleman called Jack. But actually, my real grandfather had been a fighter pilot from the US who was based in Britain. In fact, Right from where we're doing this interview today, he was based at an airbase literally about 20 miles up the road. The airbase is called Maltlesham Heath. And in fact, even today, you can go up there and visit. And um, there's a whole museum there which tells the story of the fighter group that my grandfather was part of. So I discovered, as I say, just 10 years ago now that my real grandfather was an American fighter pilot. In fact, he was highly decorated. He was awarded a Distinguished Flying Cross, a DFC, for his actions flying over Northern Europe during World War II in 1944-1945. But sadly, it got to the end of the war and obviously he had the opportunity to go home. And my grandmother, they'd had a very brief liaison and my grandmother knew she was pregnant with my father, but she decided not to tell my grandfather that he was going to be a father. And he left for America. He, in fact, he contacted my grandmother. He suspected something was up, but my grandmother told him she lost the baby. So he never knew about my father. Yes. So look, I mean, that story, there's more we could talk about. It took me, you know, some time to find him and his family and reconnect. And now my father is very much in touch with his American half brothers and half sisters. But that story, I think, is just one example of just so many that's typical of that time. There were so many young women, young men who were deeply, deeply affected by World War II. And the legacy of that conflict lives through their family histories. And and mine is just one of those stories. And that is brilliant because World War II, it did not just affect a generation or the next generation. It has that ever-going repercussions through the ages. And to find out that great discovery in the 21st century be told on your grandmother's deathbed. When did your real grandfather pass away? So my real grandfather, his name was Captain Alfred Reese Hale. He died in 1990. All I can say is I know your grandfather would be very proud of you if he'd had the chance to meet you. Sharon, I think we could do a whole separate podcast on your early journalistic career, probably on a different kind of podcast. But let's jump ahead to what made you and Paul decide to emigrate to Australia. I'll be completely frank. Paul, my dear husband, was working in London as an academic. He'd recently completed his PhD. His background is in imaging technologies, remote sensing, at that time primarily from satellites he was working with. He works more in aerial survey and drone technology today. But that was what he was working on. I was working at the BBC as a European affairs specialist covering the European Union, both in Brussels, Strasbourg, for radio and television. And look, it might sound like we were the, I don't know, that we were, were doing really well, but I can tell you, frankly, that we couldn't afford to eat. You know, we were living on the outskirts of London. And in fact, I remember that, you know, we had so little money, so little money that I even had to go to the editor of the television program I was working for once and say, look, this is really embarrassing, but you're sending me off on these assignments to Europe. Obviously, and I was on camera at that time. I was actually on, on screen as a reporter. And I said, but I actually can't afford a coat. I actually can't afford to buy one. He very kindly gave me £14 out of some kind of petty cash tin and said, go and buy yourself a coat because we actually need you to stand outside and do pieces to camera. And therefore, it's a piece of equipment that you need because if you can't afford it and you don't have one, you need to have that to do your job. 
I never forgot that. It was a real act of kindness. Yeah, so we just were realising that to live the life we wanted to live, that frankly in, in England, you know, with the jobs we had in academia and the media, there's just no way. We couldn't afford to survive. We just couldn't live. So we initially actually planned to go and live in Zimbabwe. And then we had this incredible turnaround of, of events. It would have been January 1999, where I had a job lined up. Um, I was going to set myself up as a freelance stringer based in Harare, the capital. And Paul had got himself a job working for the university in Harare. And then in January 1999, there was just this incredible 24 hours where under you know um, Robert Mugabe's regime, they suddenly started locking up journalists and torturing them. And then they actually burnt down half the university. And then bizarrely the next morning Paul got offered a job in Melbourne and I remember literally going into the BBC the next day just walking and saying does anyone know where Melbourne is because <laughs> I know it's a, it's a terribly embarrassing admission but I had no idea where Melbourne was no idea I knew it was in Australia but I had no idea in fact my boss at that time she said oh yeah I know where Melbourne is in fact I've been there it's great you'll love it yeah, so we were going to Melbourne. You find Melbourne on a map and you move there. You moved here in time to cover both Australia's 21st century wars, Afghanistan and Iraq. Yes, so what happened was we got to Melbourne. My husband, Paul, was working at Melbourne Uni, had a you know, really great start there and, and made some good friends. And, and I just set myself up as a, as a freelancer. So I carried on working for the BBC, doing some feature pieces and, and documentaries for them. But at the same time, I, I also just wanted to get some day-to-day -day income as well, just to support our young family. Because we had our son that we brought with us, Bradley, and then our daughter, Claudia, was born in Melbourne. Yes, yeah, so I got some shifts at Radio Australia for which I was exceedingly grateful and I met some really fantastic people there and it was, it was a great place to work. I also see that as a really interesting way to get to know Australia's military history because in modern coverage of current affairs, we're always linking it back to the diggers and the Anzac legend and that ideology and I imagine you wouldn't have had too much awareness of the nuance of that growing up in England, but you would have got to know a lot of that kind of folklore pretty quickly. Absolutely, though. What was interesting, of course, working at Radio Australia is that we're talking about a global broadcaster there in terms of the way that they would have framed the story and have seen how it should be covered. So rather than focusing necessarily on the Australian contribution, it was very much about, well, what do we need to know from a world news perspective about how this conflict is unfolding? And so that was very much the lens I was able to bring to that in terms of the overall kind of news and production team that were working on that. In terms of how I got interested in Australia's military history, that actually came later in that a few years after we'd arrived in Australia, we actually relocated to Adelaide, primarily because of my husband's job. He then moved to Adelaide to take up a new position there. I got the opportunity to do some lecturing with the University of South Australia in Singapore. And it would have been 2006 and I'd newly become an Australian citizen because by that time we'd been in Australia for around six years, six or seven years, and we'd qualified for citizenship. So I had an Australian passport and it turned out that I was going to be in Singapore teaching over Anzac Day. And a dear friend of mine, Dr. Nigel Stark, who's still associated with UniSA, as am I, he said to me, Sharon, you absolutely must go to the Anzac Day service in Singapore. You must go. It's really important that you do this, particularly now you're a citizen. And to be honest, like, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know anything about it. I'd kind of heard of it. I was aware of it. Each time Anzac Day had come around prior to that time, you know, we'd always attended a, a service in a local town, you know, if we'd kind of driven out for the day. I'd always been aware of it, but had no real understanding of it. And I have to say, that day was life-changing because, you know, I got up at the crack of dawn, went down to my hotel lobby, met a whole bunch of other Australians, New Zealanders. We got on a bus. We went out to the Cranji Commonwealth War Cemetery. And I was just immediately struck just by the sheer numbers of people up at that time of the morning to go to this place to pay their respects and be part of something which was just incredibly moving. You know, as we walked through the darkness, you know, you could hear the cicadas. There was this sound of a piper standing up at the memorial. 
And the memorial itself at Kranji is, is just incredible in that it's modelled on to signify aircraft wings. And it's just the enormity, the scale of it really strikes you and just the, the starkness of that white stone standing out in the darkness. And as you walk up through the graves and just as the light starts to break, that dawn light, it was just incredibly eerie but inspiring. There was something, the aesthetic of it, it kind of got into your bones. It was a joint ceremony with the New Zealanders. They kind of share it year on year in that one year Australia organises it in Singapore, the next year the New Zealanders. And that year, the New Zealanders, it was their turn. There was a hacker, there was an address, there was the traditional gunfire breakfast afterwards with rum in your coffee. And I just found the whole thing just, just mind-blowing. And I thought, now I'm an Australian, I need to understand this. I need to really understand this and understand how this is connecting with so many people, how and why it is that they see their identity as being connected with the, this ritual. And then, of course, as a journalist, I was thinking, well, what do the media make of this? How are the media kind of shaping this or responding to it? And, and what influence are they having? And that was what led to my doing a PhD on the subject. Yeah, I want to talk more about your PhD because you have managed to take this what became a lack of understanding to something you investigated and weren't just moved by you were obviously deeply affected by it to start a PhD on this subject and this is a bit of a nerdy question but one of the things I know you've done in regards to your academic work is the Anzac Day style guide and I'm an editor at a book publisher so I always appreciate a good style guide tell me more about the academic pursuits you've achieved here when I started my PhD, the subject was going to be how do the media cover Anzac Day? How do they represent their understanding of Anzac Day? And how is that connecting with the Australian public? And those were the kinds of questions I was asking. And the way I went about investigating that was to interview a whole bunch of journalists. So I conducted around 30 interviews with journalists who'd covered Anzac Day in previous years. I also collected lots of examples of coverage and analysed the language that was used, the framing of the narrative and how the media were, perhaps whether they were or were not buying into that grand narrative of the Anzac story or to what extent they were doing a different type of journalism, which is what I advocate, which is that more immersive, reflective, more that ethnographic style of journalism. And indeed, where you perhaps focus on the little stories and on the individual experiences which might run counter to the grand narrative, might challenge it, might get your audience to think differently, might get them to challenge their own assumptions, perceptions. That's the style of journalism that I certainly believe in. And I was also looking for evidence of that. But what I found along the way was that in order for me to understand what this was all about, I needed to understand the language. And I realised that just for me as a journalist to engage with the subject matter, there was a Massive gaps in my knowledge, huge gaps that there was terminology I didn't understand. There was history. There were facts and figures that I didn't know. So I thought, well, look, you know, basically I need to start to create a reference document for myself. And if I'm going to start using this, perhaps other journals might find it useful as well. So as I put the document together, it kind of started off as, you know, really I wanted to put together a crib sheet. And it kind of grew from a crib sheet into this 60 page guide which on first release, the, just the response to it was incredible. You know, journalists, you know, were really grateful for it and saying, this is fantastic. You know, this is really helpful. We're really grateful. You know, this is the kind of stuff we'd like to see in there. I made sure from the beginning that it was freely available, that, you know, you could just download it, you know, off the internet. And that then we were very responsive to people's feedback. So we made it really clear in the guide that we were really open to what people wanted to have in there the following year. So the first edition came out 2012, and then we brought out 2013, 2014, 2015. And then the final edition came out for the Anzac Centenary 2016. We'll get to your military service and the Iraq deployment in a moment, but just on the ethnographic discussion we're having here, how then did you find once you had more time in the reserves or you'd even deployed to Iraq, how has that changed how you approach interviewing military veterans and also how they receive you as an interviewer? It's a very, very interesting question because, in fact, when I did my PhD and I conducted those interviews with the 30 journalists, I remember a couple of them were reservists and had said to me that 
when they interviewed other veterans on Anzac Day and were themselves as, as journalists, even though they were there to do a job, they were wearing their medals because obviously they were entitled to. They had talked about that unique connection they had with the veteran as a fellow veteran conducting the interview. And certainly, you know, once, particularly after I deployed to Iraq, I did notice that when I engaged with fellow veterans as a, a storyteller, as a medium through which they could then tell their story on their terms, I did notice a different connection because I think people understandably, if they know that you have shared experience, when they know that if they talk about the experience of deployment, they talk about the reality of leaving your family, of leaving home, of being in an alien, high-threat environment in, in many cases, of knowing what it is to have done that and to have made some of those choices, decisions that people who are outside of the military cannot understand necessarily. They may have an appreciation, but to some extent, unless you've been there and done that, how can you ever know? How can you ever know? And I think that just after I got back from Iraq, I don't claim to know anybody else's experience either. But certainly there are certain conversations now that I can have with people where I'd like to think they're able to perhaps share something or indeed just know that I know when to turn the microphone off. I know when to give them that moment of privacy, that moment of quiet that perhaps I wouldn't have known before. And that in itself creates a connection, creates a sense of, of trust. And certainly I feel that as a result of having deployed that I'm able to have a deeper understanding of some of the experience that others may have encountered than I had before. I'm able to appreciate more perhaps what they've been through. I don't claim to know. I don't claim to have been there either because certainly my deployment very different from others. But I do feel that I can be there for them now. Before we get to your service, I am going to embarrass you and acknowledge that you are now highly regarded in this space. If anyone looks you up on Wikipedia, the longest section in that article is listing all your media awards. Just to name a few, you received a nomination for an Amnesty International Media Award in 2008 in recognition of your reporting on human rights. And in 2013, your BBC World Service documentary Anzac won bronze for best history program and silver for best writing at the International Radio Awards in New York. You were named on the South Australian Women's Honour Roll in 2015, in particular for your coverage of Indigenous Affairs and the Anzac Centenary. Besides being exceptionally good at what you do, it has obviously become quite a passion, and that really comes across in interviews you do on this podcast and all your other work, and one of those other works is a book you co-authored, Not For Glory. Well, for a start, Alex, you're making me feel quite awkward here. That's entirely intentional. Because <laughs> at the end of the day, I am an Essex girl and you are interviewing me back in my homeland where I'm very much reminded here of where I'm from and who I am. At the end of the day, I'm, I'm a journo that cares about getting the job done as well as possible. So I don't see myself as anything particularly special. You mentioned the book, an incredible opportunity. So I had the opportunity to work with Colonel Susan Newhouse, CSC. It was very much her concept and um, she very much drove that project. And it was something she'd been working on as a real passion for a number of years before she very kindly gave me the opportunity to work with her. So I'm very grateful to have had the opportunity to work on that book. And I suppose the highlight was just meeting these incredible women these incredible women. And my role, primary role, was to interview the women who were still with us and be able to capture their stories. And they came from a number of different conflicts and backgrounds and ages. So there was Di Skews, um, physiotherapist served in the Vietnam War. There was Jackie DeGelder, who's Paul DeGelder's sister. So obviously Paul DeGelder has been on your podcast on Life on the Line. Uh, there was Dr. Kerry Summerscales, who we interviewed for the podcast um, last year. Yeah, so the opportunity to meet these incredible women and, and in fact form some lifelong friendships out of it. Kerry in particular, I mean, Kerry's a, she's a really good mate of mine now, as is her husband, Kev. In fact, I had the opportunity to go to their wedding when I got back from Iraq, which was awesome, which was held in their back garden. It was fantastic. Like They actually had, Kerry recorded herself shouting out drill commands and had that 
playing as she kind of marched across her back lawn. It was awesome. It was fantastic. I was, I was there with my daughter, Claudia. We had the best day. And there was a whole bunch of other ladies that also become very dear friends of mine in the Australian Defence Force. I mean, I had the chance to meet some wonderful women and catch their stories on their terms. It's been a great success for many of them to have their stories captured. Now, Sharon, tell me what drew you to the Australian Army Reserves. Uh, congratulations, you've just recently been promoted to Major. So what drew you to it? And give me a bit of a summary about your career until 2016. I got to the end of my PhD and I thought, right, I've been working on this now for a number of years and what am I going to do now? And I thought to myself, look, do I go back to full-time journalism? Now, the reality is by that time, it was 2013. Fact is, as journalism over the last, you know, since I trained, I've been working in the media now since I was 14 years old. You know, I'm now 48. It's changed beyond all recognition from the, the industry that I entered. And I just thought to myself, look, much as I love making my documentaries for the BBC, and I, and I do, I, I, I used to really enjoy immersing myself in the subject, having the opportunity to put together, you know, say a two part, 60 minutes of radio. It was wonderful. I loved it. But frankly, it didn't pay the bills. I couldn't live on a freelance income. It was just getting harder and harder and harder to get by financially. Then I thought, well, should I go into full-time academia? And I thought, well, no, it has an appeal, but I don't see myself doing that full-time. I mean, I, I really enjoy doing academic work and I've got the wonderful opportunity at the moment to be an adjunct associate professor with UniSA and I have a great relationship with those guys. Prior to that, I was with the University of Canberra for a while. But it's certainly not something that I feel I want to do full time. And then I just had this thought, you know, I've been hanging around with all these military people for the last five, six years, and I actually really like them. And in some ways, I've got more in common with them than I have with a lot of media people, actually, which, you know, it's kind of interesting to say that. But I found that I had a lot in common with them. And in particular, what I had in common with them was their commitment to social justice, their commitment to human rights. The fact that a lot of people actually sign up to join the Australian Defence Force because they feel strongly about humanitarian work. You know, the fact that when you, we have kind of various natural disasters, you know, very often it is the ADF that gets called out and very often it's the reservists that end up doing hard yards with that. You know, if there's a cyclone or there's a bushfire, you know, they're out there doing the work. So, and I just connected with that. I mean, my husband was a volunteer with the, the fire service in, in South Australia for many years as a volunteer firefighter. I was a volunteer surf lifesaver for many years. You know, I kind of get that volunteer step up sort of mentality. And so I thought, I'd look into it and then sure as anything, you know, it turned out they needed a public affairs officer in Adelaide where basically they needed someone with a journalistic background. I thought, well, that's me. So I applied. 42, had to get through all the fitness testing and all the other crazy stuff you have to do. But yeah, I got through it and they took me and uh, I was very grateful. Well, Sharon, so you're obviously in the Army Reserves utilising a specialist skill set, for example, the Training and Doctrine podcast in 2016. Through your work with the Reserves, can you tell me about some of the stories you've been able to capture? I've had the opportunity to cover some amazing stories while I've been in the Army. A few ones that really stand out is in my first year, we had the Indigenous pre-recruit training course was hosted by 9th Brigade. Now, that's known as the IPRC. As you know, ADF is absolutely obsessed with its acronyms, three-letter acronyms. It's TLAs, as we often call them. So the Indigenous Pre-Recruitment course is all about giving a head start to young Indigenous people that are perhaps thinking about applying to join the ADF, but don't know where to start, not sure if it's for them, perhaps might need a little bit of a hand up in terms of getting their educational qualifications squared away to be able to get through the DFR recruitment process. Yeah, so we were hosting this six-week course and it was just wonderful to see these young men and women from all over Australia come to Adelaide, were hosted at Hampstead Barracks and just see their transformation really. You know, they kind of turned up, weren't sure what to expect and then by the end of the six weeks, some of them had then gone for interviews through Defence Force Recruiting and, and had been offered jobs and clearly, you know, really sort of stepped up and, and embraced the opportunity to develop themselves, learn new skills. And the way I always like to do my job 
as a public affairs officer is not only is my job to sort of be there as a point of contact, but I like to get in the middle of it and get into it and actually write the stories myself and make movies, you know, make produce videos, produce podcasts, you know, actually get out there and meet people and, and tell stories on their terms and give them the opportunity to speak themselves and really enjoy doing that. So when you joined the reserves, did you have it in the back of your mind you could actually be deployed? Was that something you were interested in? How did Iraq come about for you? Of course, you're always aware that the opportunity is there because when you go through the whole recruitment process, it's made very clear to you that, you know, if you are going to join the Australian Defence Force as a reservist, that there is the reality of deployment and that's part of the work. So I always knew it was there. Has to be said, it was not an easy decision, not an easy decision. The opportunity came up. I put in an expression of interest. It was accepted. And then I had to have a conversation with my family. I mean, we'd already talked about it, but then when the reality was that I was actually going to go, I remember sitting in the car and talking to my daughter, Claudia, about it. And um, yeah, we both cried. We both cried. And... Um, and she would have been 14? She was actually 13 when we knew I was going to go. It was a really, really, really tough thing to do. It's a tough thing to do. But fact is, as we talked about it as a family, and there was a whole bunch of reasons why we decided as a family that it was the right thing to do. I had lots of time to prepare. I was very fortunate. I mean, as you would know, I mean, through the interviews that we do for life on the line. I mean, you talk to some people and they literally get maybe, you know, a few hours notice to move, whereas I had about a year and a half. I mean, I had lots of time to prepare. So I did. Got myself into the absolute best physical shape I could. Made sure that I passed the PESA, as it's known, which is the uh, fitness test, that the all-core PESA, which um, was challenging for me because at that time I would have been 45 but made sure I passed that, no issue. Got all my affairs squared away and, yeah, went up to Darwin, did my mission-specific training along with the rest of the task group, task group Taiji 4. Yeah, and then went over to Iraq in November 2016 and, and was there until early June 2017. Regular listeners of this podcast will have heard you share a story of your time in Christmas in Iraq 2016. And the emotion there of being separated from family was particularly poignant because it was that traditional time of year to be with family and celebrating with family. Can you tell me a bit more about how you maintain contact back home and the difficulties that entailed? It's a reality that everyone who deploys, who has a family knows. It's a reality that you are away from the people that you love. And you're away from them on birthdays and Christmas and Mother's Day and Father's Day. And it's hard. It's really hard. And I think the thing that I tried to put across in that little Christmas story was that what gets you through is your mates. It might sound like a cliche to people who are not in the defence force. They might hear us talk about mateship. They might hear us talk about the friends you make. And they might think, oh, you know, they keep talking about this, you know, this whole Anzac stuff and mateship and, you know, what's that really about? Well, there is mateship. There actually is mateship. And it is what gets you through. And certainly the mates that I had at Taji, I made some dear friends while I was there who are still dear friends of mine today couple really good examples in that um, I, you know, partly because of being a little bit older than a lot of other people in the task group and a number of us did get the odd sort of ache and pain and the physiotherapist in the task group, Carmen Sampson, she became a really good mate of mine, not just because I used to go and see her to get her to fix me up, but really, really good mate of mine, just incredible young woman. Incredible young woman. In fact, she's just finished her, her master's in physiotherapy and sponsored by Defence Forces, I understand it. And we're still mates. And in fact, in February, we'll be swimming in a team to Rocknest Island together over in Perth in Western Australia. Yeah, Carmen became a very, very dear friend of mine. Another lady, Emma Palmer, an army nurse. She's now a major. Emma, incredible woman, incredible woman, had um, a former deployment to Afghanistan just her level of professionalism, compassion, her kind of connection with others. Yeah, Emma's a really special human being and she was also a really good friend of mine. Also, yeah, Nathan Thompson, Air Force squadron leader, 
yeah, he became a very good friend. I, I met some incredible people that are still my mates today and I'm, I just feel really lucky to have, have got to know such incredible people. Besides the mateship, the friendships you took away from that deployment, what was the most rewarding part of it for you? I have to say, and this kind of does lead into some other work I've been doing since I got back, there's one thing I'm really proud of in connection with what we did at Task Group Taji is we took something which looks really simple, but we took it to a whole new level in that in public affairs, there's this thing called the hometowner. Okay, Now, a hometowner is essentially an article written about an individual who's away from home, whether they're on exercise, whether they're deployed. And what it is, is it's an article written about their experience and it's put in their local newspaper. So their local community, their friends, their family, their partner, their children, anyone that matters to them, who cares about them, can read about what they're doing. And, and essentially, it's a bit of a kind of local hero type story. We took this idea of the hometowner while I was at Taji, and we just took it up a level. We just utilised new technology to really develop that very simple idea. So what we did is we conducted a whole bunch of interviews with men and women in the task group. It was during the battle for Mosul. It was actually relatively straightforward to explain the importance of what we were doing because we were there to train the Iraqi security forces to defeat ISIS. And because the battle was going on up north, it was very clear what the connection was between the training that we were conducting and the reason we were conducting that training. And so what we did was we started off by just getting a few guys and girls in the task group would say, right, would you be interested in being profiled? And we'll put it in your local paper. And as time went on, we got such an incredible response to these that we were producing them as little articles. We were putting them on social media, on Facebook. We were also producing them as podcasts. We also produced some as videos. The response we were getting was so enthusiastic from the Australian public and just people had such a kind of hunger for these things that just more and more members of the task group were coming knocking on my door. And whereas usually it would be, you know, people wouldn't want to put their hand up because they don't want to look like they're big noting themselves. Suddenly people were saying, no, this is great. You know, so-and-so had their piece in their local paper and their mum saw it or their nan saw it or their local community is really enthusiastic. I wouldn't mind doing one of those for Anzac Day or having maybe one for when I've come home as a homecoming piece. And just suddenly, just literally, they were always beating down my door, you know, just wanting to have a, have a go. When I got home, I started really reflecting on the enthusiasm and just the difference it had made to morale. The fact that to have that opportunity to tell their story on their terms and have their local community actually understand what they did and why it mattered and the unique set of skills and experiences they were now bringing home. I could just see the value of that. And then I started to think, well, we've got this massive problem with veteran unemployment. Fact is, we've got the statistics from New South Wales that you know, the, the state government there has put together showing that rates of unemployment around veterans are higher than the general population. And I thought, well, is there some way we can take this kind of very simple storytelling technique and apply that so younger veterans can then go to an employer and say, well, this is who I am. This is what I've done. This is what I can offer you. And maybe turn that whole situation on its head. And that's what we did. And I got together with a whole bunch of other veterans who could also see the value in that. We set up a not-for-profit called StoryWrite. And it's going great, guns. Sharon, I've come to understand a lot about your journalism career, your intense investigation of ethnographic journalism, your care for the subject, for the interviewee to get their story told in the best way possible, your discovery of the Anzac legend and falling in love with our military community, becoming a part of it in a significant way. And now you're not just capturing new stories with StoryWrite, but you've found a way to take a serious societal issue and tackle it head on. You've just told me about how StoryWrite came to be. Tell me a bit more about how it works, how people can sign up for it, and the actual difference you're making in their lives. I think the best way to do that, Alex, is I want to tell you a story. I love a good story. I'll take you back to when I was at Taji. Every night we would have the commander's update brief. Literally, there was this building and it was a windowless building as a lot of buildings are when you're away on ops. Not a lot of light that comes through where you're working during the day. And we would go down this corridor and we'd sit in a room and what was discussed in that room had a particular security classification. 
So I can't talk about what happened in that room in great detail for that reason. What I can tell you, though, is that on many occasions when we were in that room, there was a particular soldier whose name was mentioned. And this particular soldier was doing some work on the ground out with the Iraqi security forces. And he was doing such incredible work that towards the end of our rotation, he was given a special commendation by the Americans. So not just from our task group, not just from the Australian Defence Force. We're talking about the coalition. So this was a big deal. This was a really big deal. I always remembered this soldier's name. I won't tell you his full name. I'll tell you his name was Ryan. A few months later, obviously I'd been home for some time and I set up Story Right and we got things together and we had our fantastic team of like-minded veterans. We were ready to go with our first workshop. So essentially what Story Right does is we offer one day's training and essentially you can come along as a member past or present of the Australian Defence Force. doesn't matter how long ago you were in, doesn't matter how long, whether you're still in now, whether you've been out for some time, you can come along and we'll take you on a little journey during the one day workshop where you'll have the opportunity to work out if you're wanting a new job, if you're wanting a new opportunity, whether you're wanting just to present yourself out in the public, you're wanting to tell your story of your military service in a way that works for you, really communicates who you are, your skills, your experience, and articulates the value of who you are and what you stand for. We give you the tools to do that. And we start off in the morning where we give you a bit of background in terms of how to tailor your language for a target audience, understanding that different audiences, different groups of people might think about your military service in different ways. We then get you to think about who you might want to target in terms of communicating what you've done and being able to put your skills across in the best possible way. We also do a lot of work in terms of translation. Because in the military, there's all sorts of, of language. I mean, it goes back to the style guide work that we spoke about earlier on this interview, that there's all sorts of language that has a specific meaning or significance. But to the civilian world, it, it's meaningless. So what we do is we actually give you the tools, the techniques, the language to be able to translate that successfully. In some ways, you know, Getting out of the military and going to the civilian world, it's not dissimilar from going from one culture to another. If you're going to go to France, you know, it's kind of cool to have a phrase book. And really, we give you the phrase book. Yeah. So we give you that kind of language to get by in a new culture. That's pretty much how the workshop works. After, you know, several months of planning, making sure we've got all our ducks in a row, the Soldier Recovery Centre in Adelaide booked us and said, right, we believe in what you're doing. We're going to send you 10 young women and young men. And we want you to do your absolute best to help them on their journey as they prepare to transition out of the Australian Defence Force. As they came into the room, it was an incredible moment for us as a team, having put the workshop together, just to be able to work with these young people. And there was one soldier in particular that really stood out. He came into the room. He was beautifully turned out. One of our rules when you come to the workshop is you have to be in civilian attire. There's no uniform. He was wearing a very, very nice suit, really looked the part, looked like he was ready to go for a job interview. He'd filled in his questionnaire beforehand where we could get some background information. He was very articulate. He'd already understood clearly how to present himself in a civilian context. And I was just asking myself all morning, how come this guy's even here? Why does he need to be here? He knows how to do this stuff. So at lunchtime, I sat down with him and I said, okay, look, you know, we've just got to see what we can do to help you here. So tell me a bit more about yourself. And he said, well, look, you know, I've got a whole bunch of different injuries. I'm transitioning out. But, you know, I've applied for 60 jobs and I've not had a single interview. And I just thought to myself, right, this isn't okay. And I said to him, well, look, just tell me a bit more about yourself. And he said, well, I just got back from Taji last year. And I said, right, okay. And I'm thinking, well, he was in Taji when I was in Taji. And... I said to him, so what's your name? He said, well, my name's Ryan. And I just thought, oh, my goodness, this young man has served his country, has put himself on the line, has made incredible personal sacrifices, won a commendation from the Americans, has done all sorts of things that obviously we can't talk about for security reasons. And he's applied for 60 jobs and not one person will give him a fair go. And I have to say, I, and I have it now, I, I had a really emotional reaction. 
I just thought this is so, so wrong. This is so wrong. This is so unjust. This is not fair. What has happened in our society that such an injustice can happen? And I looked him in the eye and I said, Ryan, we're going to fix this. We're going to do something to fix this. And I have to say that there are two people in particular that made a significant difference to what happened next in that on our board, we've got a management team and an advisory board and we've got Alex and Sally Heidenreich and Sally's been interviewed previously on Life on the Line and there's her husband, Alex. And between the two of them, they offered to mentor Ryan and essentially get him to completely overhaul his CV, which they did. And as a result of that, and as a result of the support we gave him through StoryWrite, he got a job and he's still in that job. We've had a few podcasts out in the latter part of 2018 sort of exploring these transition issues, including employment. A lot of the impression I've got is it's not out of malice from the civilian sector part, it's ignorance, sometimes fear, and it's a great difficulty to encounter and you can't flick a switch and have a cultural change overnight. But the fact is you're not now trying to change, I guess, the civilian end of the stick. You're trying to actually tackle this from the veteran end. And the phrase book guide you give is a fantastic example because I'm a civilian doing this podcast. I've also had to learn that culture, that phrase book, and I'm still learning and I always will be because we don't come from that world. You are in that world now, but we have come to it and we have to learn their language. Whereas leaving they have to learn to speak like us. Absolutely. And the thing is, is it, it's not just the language either. It's also a psychological shift. We've got Dr. Paula Dabovich, who's on our advisory board, and she's recently completed her PhD, looking at issues around this very subject in that from her PhD research, she's discovered that there are significant issues for people just being able to, to adapt to that loss of tribe, that loss of connection, that loss of community when they leave the Defence Force and enter the civilian world. And they need help. They need support. And I think one thing that also really struck me when I was hearing Ryan's story is particularly with regard to the research I've done from a historical perspective around the whole Anzac narrative, is back in 1918, we had these young men returning from the Great War and we had the soldier settlement program where, you know, in many cases, these young men were just given some crappy piece of land out in the middle of Woolworth somewhere and told, right, go and scratch a living for yourself. Go and make a living for yourself. And in many cases, those bits of land failed and never produced anything that was meaningful and, and they were doomed to fail. And I just think to myself, a hundred years later, have we learned nothing? That, you know, we've still got these young men and women that go out there, serve their country, make so many sacrifices, personal, professional, family, community, go away and, and give up so much to do the right thing, to stand up for what they believe is right, to go and help the little guy somewhere else that can't stand up for him or herself. They go out there to do the right thing. They come home and then they say, right, okay, now it's my turn to get some help. And they don't get the help or they get the wrong help or they're underemployed. You know, they're given a, a job opportunity that doesn't match actually the level of skills and experience they may have. I just feel it is such an injustice. It is wrong at every level. And I just feel that if I can just do something small to help, even if I can just help one or two people to overcome that challenge and to get the life that they're hoping for, then it's been worthwhile. And the fact is we're story right because we've got a lot of us involved, we've got a, a strong, like-minded veterans community that's rallied around the concept. And the fact is we're getting results and we are helping people and we're changing that narrative. The other thing that we feel strongly about is there's a real misconception out there in the community that all veterans are injured or are not employable because they're too regimented or they're inflexible or they're hard work or whatever other barriers that the civilian world might choose to put up. Now, the fact is, is that having lived very much in both worlds now, you know, I was a civilian, you know, my entire life. And even now I'm, I'm a reservist. You know, I was only full time for one year when I deployed. From the experience I've had, all of these barriers that are put up, all of these assumptions and misconceptions, they are nonsense. They are nonsense. They're just invention. Fact is, is that people that have deployed overseas and have, have done what they've done, people who've served in the Australian Defence Force, they have incredible things to offer. They're not broken. 
they're not damaged beyond being able to contribute to society in a meaningful way. Now, if people have got injuries, they're able to draw on the strength, the resilience. They're able to turn that into a positive narrative for themselves if they're given the opportunity. And certainly through StoryWrite, that's something that we live and breathe. You know, we believe in people being given a fair opportunity, a fair go, and being able to move on with their lives in a meaningful way. What's been really pleasing for me is to see how successful StoryWrite has become in a short space of time. It's really gained some traction. Yes, we have had some success and that's been wonderful, really, really gratifying because all of us who work at StoryWrite are volunteers and we're there because we care, we really do care and we just want to get results for people. We're outcome focused and certainly from the numbers of people that have come through the workshops so far, we've had some fantastic testimonials from people that have got jobs as a direct result of coming along, that they had had perhaps a number of failed attempts before doing the workshop. Then after working with us, they've revamped their CV, they've rewritten their LinkedIn profile, they're now able to present their military service in a way that's more productive and effective for them. For some people, it's not even about getting a job. It's been the opportunity to present themselves to their local community in a way that is a bit more kind of um, empowering and more reflective of really who they are as people. Or indeed for others, it's a study opportunity they've been looking for. So really what we offer, it depends on what the veteran wants, but at the end of the day, it's communication skills, presentation skills that work. And to get in touch with StoryWrite, people can contact this podcast, but better yet, look them up on social media or their website. Yes, so we're www.storywrite.org. We're also on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And we would love to hear from anyone who's listening to this podcast who'd like to know more about what we do. In particular, if you're a veteran and you'd like to do a workshop, please make contact with us and we'll do whatever we can to assist you with that. Or indeed, if you're just a member of the veterans community and want to know how you can help, we'd also love to hear from you. And look them up. Story Right is one word with the R in right, a capital. Sharon, it's always great to be with you and it's been great to chat and learn more about your background and your passion. Thank you for speaking with me today. Thanks, Alex, and thanks for all you do for Life on the Line. Look up this podcast on social media at LOTLpod on Twitter and at Life on the Line podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. You can listen to us in Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Stitcher, and TuneIn. We're also now available on Spotify and YouTube. Links to all those pages can be found on our website. For another podcast on discussing veterans returning home and transitioning to the civilian workforce, also check out the 2018 podcast titled Panel Returning Home. And for more of Sharon's time in Iraq, listen to Christmas on the Line. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget.